Please give your attention, if you would, to the reading of God's Word. The the flowers fade, the grass withers, but God's Word stands forever. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken this scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking at the doctrine of the church this spring. What is the church? What are the benefits? How do you become part of the church? What's the church's purpose in the world? And today, we learn what the goal of the church is. Like, why are we here ultimately together? Some say to grow in practical wisdom. Some say to learn the Bible. Some say to seek forgiveness. Some say to grow in holiness. Why are you here? What is the goal of the church? Right after John in the book of Revelation, has a vision of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which represent all the churches everywhere. Immediately he is caught up, taken up into the throne room of God. And we see not only John's purpose, not only your purpose, but we see the church's purpose. What is your purpose? Why are you here? What is the goal of the church? This is an amazing scene, and it teaches us three things. Number one, what is the goal of the church? Number two, how do you know if you've reached that goal? And number three, what is the focus of it? What's the goal? How do you know if you've reached it? And what's the focus of it? All right? Here we go. What is the goal of the church? Listen, I know some of you well enough to know that some of you are thinking, all right, goodness gracious, a sermon on the goal of the church. Like, give me something practical, please. One of our favorite books in our, in our house, on our shelf, is the famous, very profound theological treatise by Dr. Seuss, Horton Hears a Who. Have you seen this book? You read this book? It's about the Who's in Whoville, right? The Who's with all of their houses and ceilings and floors and all of their churches and grocery stores. Their world is complex, and it's amazing. The who's in Whoville. It's amazingly progressive. And yet, the story shows that everything that they think is happening is just happening on a speck of dust. 
in a much, much larger world. So some of you say, well, this topic's not that important to me. All right, listen. What if the ultimate reality that you thought you knew wasn't really ultimate? What if you could actually see what is ultimate reality? And what if, what if every anxiety of your heart, every pursuit, love, lust, desire, dream was happening on a speck of dust floating in a much bigger room? And what if you actually came to discover that? Like, imagine if you knew that, you realized that. Friends, it would change everything about your life. John is taken up like a who to see that his whoville is just a speck of dust and something much more grand that's going on. The book of Revelation is an incredibly mysterious book and incredibly difficult book because it's prophetic. It's apocalyptic, which means it's a vision of what is happening in ultimate reality. And John is caught up into it. He writes the book of Revelation from the island of Patmos where he has been exiled at the end of the first century. And he writes the book of Revelation to the persecuted church of God to remind them that Jesus Christ wins over Satan in the end. And it's a picture of ultimate reality. Wouldn't you want to know it if it existed? And if it existed, if what you thought was ultimate wasn't really ultimate, it would change everything about the way you understand your life. Everything after chapters 4 and 5, listen, Revelation's tough. It's a tough book. And most people who preach through it, most people who listen to it, who read it, get lost in the trees and miss the forest. But you have this beautiful picture of the forest in Revelation 4 and 5. Because everything after Revelation chapter 5, 6 through 22, emanates out of this scene. So don't you think it's worth looking at together? Oh, Whew. yes, it is. It's beautiful. Let's look and see what we find. What do you see here? <laughs> we've got four living creatures. We've got elders. We've got a throne room. We've got seven spirits. Oh, this is going to be fun. Let's look. Verse 8, the four living creatures. There's beasts and birds and man. Most scholars agree that the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4 represent all of creation. You have the lion, the wild animals. You have the ox, the domesticated animals. You have man. You have the birds, the eagle. This is all of creation. And all of creation is where? It's before the throne. It's worshiping. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And here... Verse 13 evidences this. If you look at verse 13, it says, I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, all of creation is there before the throne. Or verse 10, the 24 elders. These are probably, most likely, almost certainly, our best guess is that these represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles 
all the people of God, Old Testament and New, brought together before the throne. So, catch me, you have before this beautiful throne, you have all of creation and all of the saints throughout history. It's an amazing scene. And John says he sees one sitting on a throne. It harkens back to Daniel chapter 7 that you heard read earlier. Or Isaiah chapter 1 or Ezekiel chapter 6. This amazing picture of the throne room of God. And there is on the throne a king with creation surrounding his throne. And all the saints throughout history surrounding the throne. Do you see it? And because John has, he is trying to figure out how do I describe this, he hearkens back to Daniel's vision. He uses Elijah's language. He uses Isaiah's language. He pulls in Ezekiel's language. And he says, ah, the only way I can describe the one that's sitting on the throne is to say that he is like priceless and rare jewels. He's brilliant. So here is John saying, I see on the throne a sovereign king over all creation who's not just sovereign, but he is also of infinite value, like precious jewels. Can you see it in your mind? But not only is he sovereign over all creation, not only is he of infinite value, he's beautiful, of infinite value. Not only is he sovereign, not only is he beautiful, not only is he of infinite value, but what else does the text say? It says that he is powerful. Because the text says that before him was a sea of glass. And John is looking at this scene. And John says, the sea was like glass. This is no small thing because in all of Scripture, the sea and the ocean always represented evil and chaos and mystery. It was the Lord who shut the sea with its doors in Job 38. It was the Lord who drove back the sea in Exodus so that the people of God could cross on dry ground. It is the Lord that Solomon says in Proverbs 8.29 who assigned the sea its shorelines and its limits. He rules over the sea, the psalmist says, and all that is in it. What does Jesus do? Why, why is some of those, the most memorable miracles of Jesus, why do they happen at the sea? It is Jesus who calms the sea. It is Jesus who admits the mystery and the chaos and the sin of the raging storm calms the storm. It is Jesus who admits the sea, the chaos, the evil of the world, doesn't just calm it, but he walks on it. And friends, John sees this throne, this majestic, sovereign king over all creation with all the saints around him, beautiful, of infinite value, and powerful because the raging sea is like glass. And then in John's shock, he says, no, no, it wasn't just like glass. 
it was like crystal. So you have in this scene a sovereign king over all creation with all the saints around him, beautiful, of infinite value, powerful. But there's more. There's a rainbow. There's a rainbow. And we know from Genesis chapter 9 that the rainbow represented God's promise that he would never again flood the earth with his wrath. And there it is. In the throne room. So here we have this sovereign king over all creation with all the saints around him of infinite value, beautiful beyond description, who's powerful, and yet he's also merciful. Can you see it? This king is not like the Roman emperors that were persecuting the Christians. John is writing to the persecuted church. This king is not cruel. He is not capricious. He is merciful. There's a king, sovereign over all creation, with the saints around the throne, beautiful, of infinite value, who's powerful. The sea is tranquil and calm, smooth like glass, like crystal. He's merciful. And then there's seven spirits, which is John's way of saying that the Holy Spirit himself is there. The Holy Spirit's here. So you have this sovereign God, beautiful, of infinite value, powerful, merciful, in the throne room with all of creation, all of the saints, and there's the Holy Spirit. Hmm. The Father, the Holy Spirit, who's missing? Well, who do you think is telling John all of this? Jesus. Jesus is there. Jesus is the first voice. Look in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice I had heard speaking to me. And back in Revelation chapter 1, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And I turned to see who was speaking to me, and I saw one like the Son of Man. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he raised me with his right hand and said, Fear not. For I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So friends, just do you see in this throne room out of Revelation 4 and 5, are you taken up, who's in Whoville? Do you see it? Ultimate reality. The king, sovereign over all creation with the saints around the throne. Beautiful of infinite value, rare jewels. With the sea of glass, he's powerful. The rainbow, he's merciful. The seven spirits, he, the Holy Spirit is there. And Jesus has invited John. He has taken him in his arms and he has said, John, come look at this. Come into the throne room of God. Jesus is the host, the mediator. He is the righteous one. Jesus is the only way you can ever see ultimate reality. Don't you see what Revelation is telling us? John is trying to show us what the goal of the church is. He is drawing us off of our speck of dust to show us the blazing center of reality. So, 
when John sees this, when he sees this throne, sovereign king, infinitely beautiful, powerful, merciful, Holy Spirit is present, Jesus is present. When he sees this, what does he see is happening? He sees the goal of the church. And it's not only the goal, it doesn't only come from men, but all of creation is bowing before the throne in worship. Do you know whenever you look over the Osage Hills and you see the sun setting on nights like last night or perhaps like tonight, and it just takes your breath away to see how beautiful Northeast Oklahoma is. Children, have you ever seen the sunset out your backyard and just seen how beautiful it is? Like it takes your breath away. Why does it take your breath away? Why does nature take your breath away so easily? Because it's doing what it was intended and designed to do. It's worshiping God. When people look at you, question, do they see you doing what you were intended, what you were designed to do? Do you take people's breath away? Because just like creation in this throne room, you were created to worship and I was created to worship and your children and my children and your mom and dad and my, we were created to worship. When people look at you, do they have their breath taken away because you are lost in worship? Worship is the goal of the church. It is happening in the very throne room of God. God is not giving more commands for us to do stuff for him. He is receiving our worship because that is where true rest is found. You cannot find true rest until you finally rest in worship. The worship of God is how you get rest. Worship is the Bible's question to every philosophical question that's ever been asked. What is the essence of life? Where is history going? What is the center of everything? What is the axis mundi? What is the axis of the world? Why does it spin? What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God. It is to worship him. One pastor has said it like this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. Worship is the essence of our life as a church. And every one of us worships. You and I always are worshiping. It is the engine of transformation that drives us, that changes us. The object that we worship contours us into his image. Stay with me. Please hear this. One writer has said that the failure to worship consigns us to life, a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move either in frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are, in turn, alarmed by the specters and soothed by the placebos. People who do not worship are swept into a vast wastelessness, a restlessness, an epidemic in the world with no steady direction or stabilizing force to sustain their purpose. Everybody worships. So let's take it further. Not only does everybody worship, but what you worship motivates what you do. The great French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal said, 
Every man seeks his own happiness. No one does anything but to this purpose. The man who goes off to war and the man who stays home. Even the man who hangs himself is motivated by one chief purpose, the pursuit of his own happiness. And what you worship is where you are placing your happiness. So if your happiness is rooted in, the, in your family, your traditional family, great. Then to the degree that you have obedient children who are successful, to the degree that your house is taken care of and in good order, that's the degree to which you'll be happy. If your happiness is rooted in your career, to the degree to which your career is going successfully and wonderfully and great, great. That's your object of worship. That determines your happiness. John here is saying that in this picture of the church being who she should be, caught up in corporate worship of the one true God, it is a shorthand way of helping you know your terrifying potential. As one who is not just being saved from your sin, certainly not less than that, but one who is being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and who will reign with him forever and ever. So, if the goal of the church is worship, how do you know if you're doing it? How do we know? Well, let's look at what the 24 elders did. Take your bulletin, lower your eyes to the text. Look with me at verse 10. It says, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. How do we know they're worshiping? Ah, oh, they cast their crowns before the throne. A crown was a reward. It was an identity. It was a purpose. It was your achievement. And here the 24 elders are taking the crowns off their heads, their white knuckles are turning red, and they're releasing it. And they are throwing down their crowns. Do you see the picture? To the sovereign king, bedazzled with splendor, who is being worshipped by all of creation, and all the saints who are throwing their crowns, their achievement, their identity at his feet, who is powerful, who is merciful, there in the presence of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, receiving the worship of the saints. There it is. How do you know if you're worshiping? You cast your crowns. Most people think that worship is really emotional. It's not, friends. It is primarily rational. The Gospels tell us a story of a rancher and of an entrepreneur. In Matthew chapter 13, he tells the story of a rancher. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a rancher who found a treasure buried in a field. And this rancher is told by people, listen, there's a field out there, you might want to buy it. But it will, you will have to leverage all your cattle to buy it. And the rancher goes, no, that's impossible. There's no way I'm going to leverage my cattle to buy a field. No, I can't afford it. It's impossible. I can't do it. Ah, but rancher, there is buried treasure in that field. It's impossible. I can't leverage. I can't afford to buy that field. And then the rancher hears, like, what if there, <laughs> what if there really were buried treasure there? 
It's improbable. Hmm, that's progress. What once was impossible, now it's improbable. And some of you, as you hear the gospel, listen, this is impossible. There's no way I'm going to believe in a bloody cross and an empty tomb. There's no way I'm going to believe this stuff. But what if there's treasure there? Don't you want to go look? So this rancher, Matthew 13, verse 44, he goes and he looks. And it doesn't just seem to be improbable. It actually seems to be possible. And he goes home, this rancher, and he takes his cattle. And he doesn't just leverage his cattle. He sells them. He doesn't just leverage his house. He sells his house. He sells the tractor. He sells everything he owns. Because wouldn't you give up a million dollars to gain a billion? Oh, worship, friends, is not first primarily emotional. It is incredibly rational. Are you using your heads? Whose? In Whoville? Do you see the speck of dust? Or it's like the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur, is, he's a merchant. He's searching for fine pearls. And he finds a pearl of great price. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to sell everything for this pearl of great price. Worship is rational. And John is taking you into the throne room of God. Like, do you see it? Can you imagine it? And how do you know if you really see it? You cast your crowns down. You sell the farm. You give up, not literally children, but you figuratively say, my identity, everything that I have, I want to give to Jesus. You're casting your crowns. Where are your knuckles white around the things that you will not give up for Jesus? What is so important to you that your white knuckles show? You have something. What is it? Where do your white knuckles show? Because you know you're worshiping when you cast your crowns at the feet of the beautiful one enthroned, bedazzled, sovereign over all creation, beautiful like jewels, infinitely valuable, powerful. The sea is like glass before him, merciful. What's the goal of the church? The goal of the church is worship. How do you know if you're worshiping? You cast your crowns. That's why the church gathers every week. It is a reminder for the amassing of achievement that you have made over the week to come again and again to the throne room of God and to cast your crowns and to hear again the preached word of God tell you that Jesus is worth selling the farm for. What is the focus of our worship? Then I saw verse 1 of chapter 5. In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Worthy, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or look into it. What is worship? Worship is, it comes from the old English word to worth-ship. 
It means to say something that's of infinite value. And here, there is a scroll, there is a, a testament, there is a last will and testament, there is a, a will, and it is given to you. But, but it's like if, if, you, if you have someone close to you who dies and they give you a will, and this will has all the promises of the execution of their estate. And it's your, but, no, but the conditions are placed on the will. And you look around the room and nobody can meet those conditions. Nobody in your family can meet those. And John, it says, he sees this and he weeps. Because Adam sure didn't meet those conditions. He turned away from ultimate reality and believed Satan's lie about reality. Noah didn't meet those conditions. David didn't meet them. Neither did Solomon. Neither did Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. Neither did Peter, James, or John. Neither do you. Neither do me. And John is there in the throne room with all the promises of God, the covenants that he has made with man, and it's sealed. And he weeps. And an elder comes to him, please hear me, and gives him the summary of every sermon you should ever hear. Weep no more. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, is here, and he is worthy to open the seven seals. Every sermon you hear is given to John by this elder. Do not weep. See the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse. He alone is worthy to open the covenants that God has made with man. And you know what the amazing thing is about this chapter? Is that when John turns to look at the lion of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who does John say he sees but a lamb with his throat slit as though he had been slain? What if everything you thought you knew about reality was just life on a speck of dust in a much bigger room? What if you were created to worship the triune God, infinitely beautiful, sovereign over all creation, who is beautiful beyond description, more powerful than you can ever imagine, makes the raging chaos of sin like crystal? who is merciful, who took his wrath and he placed it on a lamb, Jesus. Because when you turn to look at what is true truth, when you turn to look for the line of the tribe of Judah, who do you see? You see a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. Because Jesus took upon ourself the sin that we carry and he bore it on that cross, and he died. He was a lamb of God. What does his cousin John say, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus? The first thing he says in Jesus' ministry is, Behold, John 1, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see him? It's an amazing scene. It shows us what the goal of the church is. And you can never begin to worship, friends, until you begin to cast your crowns down at the foot of the Lamb. Because worthy is He to open the scroll. Worthy is He to do for you what you can never do by yourself. To accomplish everything God asks of us perfectly. 
to take upon the wrath we deserved upon himself, to be the lion who becomes the lamb, so that we who are vulnerable lambs might be caught up with him and we might reign together with the lamb forever and ever. That is the goal of the church. It is beautiful. Do you see it? Cast your crowns. Let's pray. Help us, O oh Father, to look and hear around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels and myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Help us to see it and to be ravished by it. Change us, O oh Father, we pray, through your Son, who is the Lamb of God. Have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.